Hi, this is Corbeau. We recorded this episode three days ago, and in the last three days, the Kickstarter for the upcoming lore book went live. So there's a link to that in the show notes. Click on it, check it out, support the project, leave comments, tell your friends. It's going to be a great book. Take care. My name is, let's get on to the episode. Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixundraconis fan podcast broadcasting from Ace Hef Hall at Lake Voltaire on Demos. The Demos Chamber of Commerce and Tourism invites visitors to our new bowling alley and lounge. The newly opened Bullmore has three lanes and extends fully 2% of the width of the moon, but that's not saying very much. This week's episode is episode 20, Hot Zones. We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So tonight's topic is opening up the idea of hot zones in HSD. In a game with a strong urban utopia element and high levels of surveillance, the hot zones let PCs interact with street-level violence, military elements, and other good stuff. And we're going to open this up with an interview with Pierce Fraser or Sev, the author of Ixendraconis. I don't really have much to say about that. There's a lot of uh, spoilers and sneak previews from the upcoming lore book. Manimi, play the interview. Well, I'd like to thank the creator of Vixundraconis for joining us today to help us unpack the concept of hot zones. Welcome, welcome, Pierce Fraser. Hey. Pierce is a writer and artist who's been making content for, what would you say, 15 years now? Uh, give or take, depending on what it is you're calling content. <laughs> Game-related <laughs> content's more like five. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you found the time to chat with us. Thank you so much. Sure, no problem. So before we get started on the topic, what's on the horizon for Ixendraconis? Uh, quite a bit. Um, so we just finished up the Kickstarter, and fulfillment is currently taking place for the second line of miniatures, which added about 300 parts to the already 100-part large uh, miniature line. Pictures of TARS are being floated. Yeah, all over, all over the place. I'm actually working on one right now, the one that just... I put up a video yesterday of an unboxing, and I'm currently polishing up that model to get it painted, hopefully. Oh, neat. We'll link to that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's out there. Um, I say parts. It's the wrong word. It's like 300 configurations. Um, there's a few <laughs> fewer or less parts than that, but in terms of options, there's, there's hundreds at this point. Uh, but that's done, and those will actually be featured, I think, as probably Kickstarter rewards in the future for books that are coming out. So people who wanted to get models but uh, also want to participate in Kickstarters and stuff, you might get your opportunity for rewards. Um, the next book that's coming out is the lore book, which will have information on the stuff you're actually asking about today, as well as a whole lot of other things. That book is about... I think it's going to be like 230 pages, give or take. Ooh. Uh, there's a lot in there. Yeah, um, some of it more secret than others. Uh, it's it's a lot of world building and a lot of lore and a lot of um, just setting description so people have things to work with. Is that as big as the original core book? No, I think the original core book was about 300-something, and then the uh, uh, core extended was about 200. So it's about as big as close. that. Yeah, it's about as big as core extended was, um, which is why you don't see a lot of this information in the core rule book because it would have been awfully expensive. Um, well, I remember. 
in the extended book, there was like 15 pages of lore and that kind of doubled the size of the universe for me. So I'm really excited. Yeah, uh, actually, there's going to be a, a special edition of this lore book coming out that will include that part if people want it. Um, you can buy it without that. But the book that's coming out can have a special edition that will have that included specifically for people who are planning on joining in the franchise when it gets second edition, which is going to be coming out in the next year or so. And if you if you start up with second edition, there isn't really a need for you to buy core extended and you would be missing out on a lot of that lore material. OK, so there's been a, an expanded version that will have some of the material from the current what we call the extended book. Yeah, from the extended book in there. All that color and the conversation with the strange outside creature and all that. Yeah, the, the details at the end and stuff. It's just for people who want to have a, a large compendium of all the lore in one place. Neat. Well, looking forward to that. So digging into the concept of hot zones. At this point, Ixun Draconis is about three years old and the world's evolved and it's more lived in. And like you said, you're expanding specifically this concept with the lore book. So I want to start with a really basic question. Mm -hmm. Now that the game's been released into the world, what is a hot zone? Uh, so this is a, like most things in most games, this has two layers to it. Part of it's the player layer, wherein it is a, a dynamic for players to use as a plot hook, right? Totally meta in that, you know, it exists so that you have a conflict that you can work with. Um, but in terms of the actual story for the game, which is the other half of it, it is essentially a word that describes any corp on corp conflict of small scale, small being relative. Um, wherein it'll be finished within a few days to a week or so. Uh, and is usually um, within the confines of a single city. Uh, doesn't involve a huge troop presence or anything like that. Um, and is controlled or governed by the local IRPF presence. So it's sanctioned. It's sanctioned combat. So this is almost like like a uh, public sports game or something, it sounds like. A little bit. Um, it, it is still dangerous. People do get hurt. People do get killed. It's it's sort of like a, a way to bring in a little of that dystopia into the setting, wherein, yes, HSD has a functional uh, setting with a functional economy and people are able to live their lives and stuff, but it, it shouldn't be confused with something that is particularly safe. It's like a hostile takeover that's actually hostile, basically. Huh. You know, I never thought that it was uh, an event almost that was mapped out and pre-planned so much. Yeah, uh, it can even be coordinated between corps. They, it's, it's a way to essentially write off assets for a real reason. Like if a corp is going to buy out another corp and they've decided ahead of time that it's going to happen, but they, the merger isn't necessarily publicly appreciated, like the, it's going to cause some kind of monopoly or the, the public isn't going to be happy about it, they could stage a hot zone in which the smaller corp is actually physically taken over by the larger, which will get people at least behind them. In terms of like my team has beaten your team thing. Sometimes they're spontaneous, but the thing about them is ideally you have two organizations that are within a certain bracket of each other, kind of sort of. If you think about it through the IRPF standards, they, they pay for a certain level of security. So if they're going to have an offensive engagement against each other, they engage within a certain uh, relative power scale. It's not like one person walks over and steamrolls the other. They are legally obligated to engage within a certain level of weaponry, within a certain level of, of like offensive ability. Otherwise, they end up paying fines to the IRPF or, or face criminal charges, which happens. I don't want to say it doesn't, <laughs> but uh, but that is one of the means of controlling it. It, it is a, uh, a sanction. Thing. So the powers that be have allowed this as a structure for a certain type of takeover which gives it a public spectacle, the sense that real conflict and not artificial conflict has taken place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a few things with that. You know, part of it's the money. Part of it's uh, being able to use assets that you had purchased 
uh, in a way that will make them lose their values so that you can then write them off and work on all sorts of other stuff. You can kind of make up whatever monetary reason you want to for it. But the other big part of it, again, from the player's side of the, the organization, is that it gives players a nice way to engage in small-scale conflicts without having to dredge themselves through an entire war plot. So if you want to make a mercenary group or something, and that's your, your player-based decision of how you want this uh, role-playing game to go for you, you have a series of different conflicts that will only take you a couple days to go through, hmm. uh, where you can be hired by a corp that, that can't afford to pay. They're going to be the recipient of this hot zone attack. They know it's coming, um, but they can't afford IRPF protection because it's X expensive. Uh, they will go to a mercenary group like a player group and say, protect us during the course of this three days where we have this event going on. So how big is the physical space we're looking at? Uh, it depends. Again, it goes in tiers, right? So if you go with a, you know, if the local coffee shop wants to attack the local donut shop, which is a silly idea, but I'm using it as a metaphor, right? <laughs> I'm really interested in donut shops in Exynodraconis. I've established that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's super, super advanced donuts uh, using our, our amazing donut machines. Uh, but yeah, if you have a situation like that, chances are the scale of their sanctioned combat is going to be pretty small. You're probably talking about five people and, and knives and maybe handguns or something like that. So they, they map up an area where they figure it's going to be safe for that going to be. And then IRPF flags it on everybody's toggles nearby and says, avoid this area during the following, you know, X days or so. And then they will go off and have as much of engagement as they want to. Now, they're not obligated to kill each other uh, or anything else like that, but they, they have mapped out the time basically. So what it comes to after that is that most people don't have private armies True. sitting around with them, especially if they're smaller scale corps. So it's really just their employees that are doing it. And their employees are dedicated because they want to get paid, but they might not be dedicated to death. So the actual event of how bad the combat is will come down to the corp and how indoctrinated its people are and how important it is that they actually win. And there's not a clear def difference between the idea of a citizen and an employee in this world. Not, not generally, no. Um, actually, uh, for you, you can be employed to a to a basic corp donut shop, Joe, or whatever you want to call it, um, and that is that is your employer um, more than you are employed to the Marsco town that you're in because they don't necessarily have you on any particular payroll or anything like that. But the employer that you're working for is probably under contract to the town that you're in, which makes them subsidiary to that town. And at any given point. If a hot zone is looking like it's going to become a problem, uh, it can basically be shut down by the larger powers, which you sort of want to avoid because then you start paying for things when you were really trying to get money. So there's this this balance of using violence to achieve your ends, um, but also not using so much that it's going to become costly to you. Huh. Now, the idea of the hot zone does not require violence. It could be negotiated with just straightforward diplomacy or mm -hmm. mock weapon, mock combat or a video game event or something. The, the hot zone itself is inherently violent, but you can have conversations between corps that don't involve hot zones. And all the diplomacy and stuff that you would normally see in any kind of real world situation could take place. And, and assuming that failed or a compromise couldn't be met, then you might look at a violent solution for it. This is really changing my idea of the concept a lot, because on paper in the original book, it just sounded like a raw zone between two states, an unplanned sort of event. Well, that can happen too. That, that is, I wouldn't necessarily call it the default because there's usually, in order to make it legal between, if you're under an IRPF contract for, for a larger town or something like that, you do need to have some degree of, you know, we're going to declare this against this other guy. Um, they don't necessarily have to agree to it because who would? 
but but you need to you know pay your fees and and stuff as long as the megacorp is getting cash out of it they don't particularly care there is a, a degree of planning that takes place rather than just jumping in and shooting somebody because that's the difference between a hot zone and a homicide but sometimes they can be more planned than others you can have corps that are actually communicating with each other and going um we want to make sure that we have mapped out the following things so that nobody's going to go overboard and you don't have a missile launcher sitting in your back closet or something like that. Uh, and we, we plan to spend X amount of money. And by doing this, both of our corps are going to come out on top because that's possible too. If you, if you remove just enough assets in your conflict without costing um, too many physical assets, maybe you avoid, uh, you destroy both buildings, right? Cause they're old. Uh, but you, you manage to keep your employees okay by saying, okay, my primary strike is going to be here. My secondary strike is going to be here. Let's just move a few of your people out of the side, take minimum casualties and both of us come out on top. It is supposed to be grisly and immoral. That's the idea behind it. But you're, the degree of planning can vary entirely uh, based on which corp is involved. So. And from the position of a weaker corporation, it may seem unplanned if they haven't been able to set up their barricades or walls. They, right. they may not have a say in whether this happens to them. Mm-hmm. That, that is the, the advantage of having the, the more advanced corp. We actually talked about it a little bit in the chat not too long ago. But there was a, the idea of, say you have Super Donut Shop, right? Your, your Starbucks or whatever. Tim Hortons has decided to declare war on other donut shops. Uh, they decide that they want to take out everybody on the street, and they have the employees to do it. Um, but they can't swarm them all. They have to engage on them on their level, or they're going to have to face IRPF consequences for, for going over the kind of terms of engagement that have been assigned for that particular corp level, which means that they're throwing a lot of employees in a lot of different directions, which might actually start breeding unrest within their own ranks, because frankly, those people don't want to go out and fight. They want to make donuts. That's what they were there to do. Yeah. So there is a balance between how loyal your own citizenry is versus uh, how important it is for you to take out competition. So it seems like it'd be really hazardous to have a cluster of businesses that are similar in nature together. Well, I guess they can exist in a in a state of non-conflict, but there'd always be that threat. There, there would be that threat. But before... Um, Anybody that kind of leaps on the idea of, you know, why don't you just do this all the time? These ideas are based on the concept of self-preservation being pretty important to most people. Body replacement does exist in HSD, but it's not to nearly the level it is in, say, Eclipse phase. Like, very rarely do people get to replace their bodies. It's only superstars that get to do that or extremely important CEOs for multi-trillion dollar businesses, you know, maybe get to do that. The average employee has one life to live. So going off and declaring war against somebody because they're selling the same donuts as you, maybe you just lower your price a little bit. So this in a situation where the corporations are the only brokers of law, this is kind of the final solution in a negotiation that hasn't been able to take place properly. Pretty much, yeah. Or if you don't want to pay the right fees to the right people, stuff like that. Okay. Interesting. Well, this has really changed my changed some of my views on this idea. One thing I wanted to ask about is how are the concept of hot zones, which is an established thing in Ixun Draconis, related to the new concept of a shadow war, which I don't think has been mentioned in the existing books. There hasn't been a talk about those in the previous books. That's something that's in the lore book um, that is coming up as another opportunity. Um, again, there's there's two sides to all of these decisions, right? The, the idea behind the player side of the shadow war is for people who want to have a long-term conflict. Uh, Because the hot zones are, by definition, fairly short. 
So for players that want to have a long-term conflict, there is this um, event that will occasionally take place between megacorps. It's basically what a Shadow War is, is a hot zone between megacorps. Oh. Um, and it is done in such a way that it is off the radar and difficult to see. They keep it off in space. They keep it on orbital platforms or, or places that are far away. Or even, you know, we do have to keep in mind that these are planet-sized areas. Not everybody's eyes are everywhere all the time. So they put it in some place that's difficult to monitor. Most of Venus is off the radar. <laughs> Yeah, for the most part. I mean, you can see it through satellites, but the megacorps own the satellites. So, you know, all the media companies and stuff, they all end up filtering back through the megacorps again. So they decide where not to look for, you know, the next several months or something like that. And then the megacorps will go to war against each other for an extended period, which gives them the opportunity to burn down assets, which then gives them the opportunity to hire more people and do stuff like that. Um, the issue with the megacorps that's brought up from time to time is that they have so much funding that it becomes unnecessary for them to garner more Basically, there's more money than there is to spend. So by doing this, they kind of burn a lot of those assets away and then have a reason to get that money back going again, which then hires more people and puts more stuff into it. It's like a really uh, immoral economy booster, basically, <laughs> uh, is the way they sort of look at it. But they're secret because the public wouldn't like it. There are a lot of deaths involved. There's a lot of killing involved, and there isn't usually a very good reason for it. It's not over property. It's not over resource. They're not usually trying to gain much by it. Sometimes it's skirmishing, but they typically avoid that because if you bring out too many of your fun toys, then when the enemy actually decides to go after you someday, say ASR gets oddly aggressive and decides they want to take over their company, if you've had too many skirmishes against them, they might actually know your tactics too well. So they end up segmenting out, and, and this is how they refresh their fleets and stuff like that. But that is an opportunity for people who want to play career soldiers uh, or anything else that involves uh, long to long scale uh, combat. Um, and it leads to this fun social situation where there are veterans of these affairs that are very kind of quiet about where they've actually gotten their experience from. And all the megacorps know about it. So IRPF will hire these veterans or anybody else will, will hire these veterans. But to the natural public, they, they just sort of seem like mercs that have seen an oddly large amount of combat for what is actually reported. This is a possible way to integrate the long-form battle story that's, I mean, really common in science fiction into your campaign. Yeah, it, it's a player trope that a lot of players like to play with. You know, I've, I've been a soldier for 40 years or something like that, and it's um, this is a way to do that where you can be on long-scale campaigns where you've been in the trenches for a long time. Military isn't really quite a thing in HSD as written right now. Not, yeah, not, not, not as much because the conflicts are generally on a mercenary kind of short-scale thing from attack to attack, but this will, this will give people an opportunity to play with that a little bit more. Um, the Marsco security force is another thing. Uh, that's talked about in the lore book that has always been there, but wasn't really defined very well. Marsco Security Force? It's it's their own personal version of the IRPF that predated them and eventually turned into them. Oh. So it was it was mentioned. Um, I don't think it had a name in the, uh, the original kind of write up for the history, but there was a security force that once the new power sources came out that allowed for combat in space turned into the IRPF. Yeah, that was hinted at, but. I assumed it was one of the many hazy mini corporations that's floating in space. Yeah, it was. It was basically Mars Corps' uh, first security force from when the colonies began, and it still exists in name and does a lot of Mars Corps' um, kind of individual warfare stuff. They're more loyal to Mars Corps than they are to the IRPF, which is something that Mars Corps likes. Um, that's the other thing with with Shadow Wars is that, as opposed to the kind of employees that are in a uh, hot zone situation that are probably more loyal to themselves than they are to the corp and will eventually not want to fight them anymore. Shadow Wars bring in career people who are specifically loyal to the Corp as kind of a, doc as a doctrine, because they're not really supposed to be talking about these conflicts after they happen. 
So these are, these may these may be internal employees rather than uh, rather than IRPF people. Well, they're, they're they're internal employees who are specifically trained for fighting. Like they're 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 brought in as personal security and and stuff like that, so that you are a soldier, quote unquote, uh, for the corp. And it in, involves a lot of ideology and and kind of faithfulness to the company that they're working for. So they don't go necessarily talking about what they've seen. Hmm. Here we're really dealing with a place where the concept of corporation heavily overlaps with what. Terra would define as a nation. Yeah, um, and that's also stuff that's brought up in the lore book um, for people to kind of uh, use as things to play with is while there is no government in Seoul, um, that's largely because the definition of government has changed. <laughs> and, and the way they understand it has changed because they have no previous ideas of what this is supposed to do. The microcorps are governing in that that is the action that they're doing. Um, but what they're they're actually taking place with is sort of like I describe it as a benevolent dictatorship, and the benevolent is really kind of subject to just not knowing how bad things could be <laughs> yeah. because the technology takes over for a lot of the stuff that, that a dictator would normally be known for doing, uh, the enslavement of people, uh, stuff like that. They don't necessarily need to do that because the tech just handles it for them. But the, the fact remains that they are essentially running every sector. Uh, one of the things that's brought up with the lore book is that Effectively in space, we, we talk about stealth a few times in the, the HSD main rulebook where, where Spyglass knows how to stealth their ships uh, and, a, and a few other things like uh, stations that are sort of off the grid because they've gone up instead of sideways on the orbital plane. It's a big uh, universe. So say, it is a big universe. The thing is, stealth in space is really kind of a myth. Um, you're talking about a background of almost absolute zero. Any thermal energy is extremely easy to see from a from like just a door opening, just lights up. And anything moving in a way that is not a natural orbital body is extremely easy to see, and it's really not that hard to map all of it either. But your perception is only as good as your technology, and the megacorps own all the technology, uh, which gives them the ability to fool the technology when they want to. So a lot of the stuff that's talked about in the lore book is that some of the things we interpret as stealth, some of the things they interpret as a lack of government, uh, and a lot of the stuff that, that Sol knows about technology is largely because the people in charge have just decided that's the way it is. And nobody has seen any other examples to look at. We've assumed that's what the question of where did Lightspeed go uh, figures in. Right. Uh, so like we're, we're, we're not terribly far away from that in terms of what we, we believe we're leading toward in a in – a, uh, science setting just in our modern era, and it really seems like after 700 years or so, yeah. uh, Seoul probably should have had that. Um, they haven't had that because it's been stopped, basically. Uh, there was It's also mentioned in the lore book that there was a, a, a sort of agreement among many closet agreements to keep the powerful people in power, that nobody was going to develop light speed unless everybody got it at once, because it was going to give one person too much power. You could just be in one place and then be away from that one place, and that was going to require an, a level of escalation that would be pretty cataclysmic. Like If this one corpse suddenly has the ability to be anywhere they want to instantly, um, or near instantly, and then can escape every ship that's pursuing them, they're too strong, and all the other corpses are going to have to come down on them and kill potentially millions of people uh, in order to make sure that, that that technology doesn't unbalance the system. So they agreed not to do it. And then when it turned out that, uh, you know, if you're going to have to do it uh, and do the research and then share the research with everybody, then it becomes kind of expensive to do because you're not getting an initial funding out of it. So nobody developed it. Huh. Uh, and the, the little subcorps that were trying to work on it would get bought out, um, which is the, the kind of easy story of, of how smaller companies end up disappearing is, uh, you know, Mars could will buy them out and turn their technology to new ways to make coffee. Or something like that. That's our world. Yeah. No, no change there then. 
it's pretty much, yeah, it, it's common stuff, right? So in order to avoid those situations of imbalance incurring um, or just keeping the, the powerful folks where they are, uh, a lot of technology is quashed before it gets the chance to come out. Um, and there is an introduction of a new corp in the lore book um, that's brand new. It's only about a year old in terms of the story. So that's why there's no, you can't use them as a, a founder for your character because they don't have anything that teaches anybody yet. They don't have any, any corp towns or anything like that, but they have an exceptionally large amount of money because they showed up from nowhere undetected uh, using Lightspeed craft. So Lightspeed is going to be brought into HSD 2.0 uh, thanks to this new corp as well as, as a few other esoteric technologies. And this is a, a, a kind of a new fun threat to play with because, like I mentioned, with the, the stealth being a result of the megacorps controlling all the information, none of them knew that this company existed, which is kind of frightening to them because they know everything. So, <laughs> Is this group going to be in the core book 2.0 or is it more an aspect of the the lore book it, it will be mentioned in 2.0 you won't be able to use it as your as your starting uh, education core good because <laughs> they're not new enough yeah they're not they're not they're not old enough they don't have any towns or anything like that they just sort of exist um but they uh they will be in the lore as something to play with so if you want to play around with having lightspeed craft as a way to get your team around you'll have to pay a lot about money to do it but it's a huge asset Right. You get from one planet to another in a matter of hours as opposed to days to weeks. It's a pretty strong transformation of the setting. It is. Um, now, that's that's funny is that uh, oh, I guess I can't get too far into that. Can I? No, no, no. It's OK. Uh, there, <laughs> there's some there's some stuff uh, that that explains why it is that nobody else has it at the moment, uh, which I think will be fun for people to play with. Um, but it is it is a, a way to get some new interest in. So I, ha I have one more question uh, rolling back in time some 500 years or so. Do you think that hot zones were seen as a feature or a flaw or a necessary evil or a kink in the system? Uh, most of the – so the, the actual lore description for why it is that those occurred to begin with uh, took place about – about 100 years or so after the colony began, maybe 200, uh, wherein there were a lot of people. Things were coming around. There was a lot of money going on. Um, Marsco was still the biggest boy on the block. ASR was kind of just starting. Um, and there wasn't enough litigation and essentially workforce to monitor everybody who was trying to build their own things. And technology was very powerful without a whole lot of responsibility for how to use it. So there were a lot of corporations that were showing up in this kind of new free boon of, of you know, we, we now have cash and stuff, and they were going after each other, and there wasn't really a way for the big guys to step in to stop it without putting themselves at risk. So eventually they just sort of said, all right, we're, we're in a frontier situation here. Do what you will and suffer your own consequences. That's not the case in the modern era now, but well, at the time— Yeah, we have the big seven now. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, that was sort of how they did it because there wasn't enough people and assets to to kind of go to every one of these little squabbles and stop them. And if they did, they'd start looking like dictators, which they eventually got around to being. But they they were attempting to avoid it at the time. So when you when you've got a whole bunch of these little conflicts going on and you don't really have a force involved to stop it, they eventually just sort of said govern yourselves, which led to this concept of them being able to fight their own battles, which definitely would privilege the big seven and the rising megacorps yeah it, it, it meant that they could wash their hands of responsibility for a lot of conflict that was going on beautiful um which is one of the reasons that the irpf became so popular is because they they represent this way of controlling that sort of violence which the public really wanted but they are still subservient to the corps that are hiring them so 
everybody kind of gets a chance to win there. The megacorps can be like, all right, I want you to let this violent happen, but stop that violence over there. And the IRPF can can make a set of rules that everybody gets to look at and reference. They feel a little safer. It's it's mostly collusion on all different fronts. Has the idea of the hot zone changed significantly since you first penned it three years ago, or were the seeds already there? Uh, most of it um, is is pretty much the same way as it as it always was. So again, we go back to the the kind of two sides of every decision made for any gaming thing. The hot zone has always existed as a way for players to get into violence in the streets and having fun uh, situations where they can storm a building and take a, an asset and stuff like that and not have to deal with the... The biggest problem we have in any modern era game is that there are, there are agencies in place to prevent things like this from happening. So if you go into a, a modern era game and go storm a building and steal something and go home, eventually forensic science is going to find out that you didn't right. and haul you off to jail, right? <laughs> which is really kind of annoying from a player standpoint because that's just not fun. Yeah, that, there's a lot, of, a lot of game plots that couldn't exist in a world that's as kind of sanitized and, and carefully organized as the Vector Society is. Right. And, and you, you find your ways around that. Um, so they, they do it in, in Shadowrun and stuff. They just make the whole place so dystopian that 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 just sort of happens. And this one, we, we create an agency that allows this to occur within certain scales. And if it, players want to have it on a more violent scale, they just engage in a hot zone that is more violent. Right. It, it scales upward depending on the size of the court. For uh, for people that aren't player characters, how likely is it that they would have encountered one of these situations? I mean, you said they're common, but they are they are fairly common. You won't actually be in one unless you're called to to be in one. But but chances are pretty often uh, most people will have had to vacate an area or will uh, have to you know mark on their calendars to not travel into a certain zone you know a few times a year. Okay. Uh, they're not always, you know, days long and they're not always a week long. Sometimes it can be a matter of hours. It really comes down to how, how long people's nerve lasts once the bullets actually start flying. Uh, the hot zones are one of those things that sound really exciting to an employee until they actually get shot at. Right. So <laughs> that is a, a thing. And, and that is supposed to be part of it. So that's why um, oftentimes player group, mercenary groups will be called in to do the actual fighting. It's expensive to the company, but the company can't count on their workforce to necessarily stand in front with a gun and try to fight for them. No, they're there for the make the donuts. They're not there for the yeah, guns. Pretty much. That's, or that they'd even be particularly good at it. So <laughs> it gives you a, 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 a way to get some players in and a way to um, also see the same enemies over and over again. I like having NPCs in a game that will repair. Uh, so if you if you as a guide have a group of NPC enemies that are called in for these hot zones and your players enjoy playing these, then you might run into the same counterattack group on a regular basis and build rivalries and, and have fun situations like that. One idea that puts Ixundraconus over the more murder hobo approach to game that you sometimes get is that people don't tend to kill. They don't tend to. Yeah, the idea is to win, not necessarily to kill. So sometimes that happens, um, but in the way it's actually factored in 2.0, which I don't really mind talking about, is unless an enemy deliberately goes over and caps you in the head after you've been dropped to zero hit points, you're not dead. You're just hurt. Uh, you're hurt and you can't fight anymore. Um, and it's pretty rare that an enemy will go over there and actually end you because it is a high technology setting. Uh, it is a, a uh, modern setting, and it's pretty easy to find out if somebody killed in cold blood, but they didn't need to. There, there'll be some camera somewhere. They'll check powder burns. 
they'll do something and they'll be like, okay, this person was incapacitated. They weren't going to fight back and this other guy just axed them and then the RPF will go after them. So there, there will still be enemies that do execute you because they're crazy, because they're angry, because it's personal, whatever the case is. But in, in 2.0, if you drop to zero hit points, you're just out of the fight. You have to go to the hospital and get patched up. You'll be injured, but you're not dead unless the enemy is deliberately vindictive. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing more of the color and texture of this in the lore book. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, take care, and we hope to talk to you again in the future. Um, so I, I would kind of like to apologize for some of that. We are using the Transcendent Technology podcasting suite, and periodically it would turn into a series of gently waving crystals or a pile of sea pickles. Which still worked, but it did change the acoustics somewhat. <laughs> the timber. Yes. The unicorns, man. So where do we start with this? I've got a lot of uh, relevant like reading. I'd like to assign people homework. I know people love homework. Uh -huh. um, but besides that, uh, that was a lot of uh, new ideas for me. Well, I think right off the bat, we can start pulling aside the curtain a little bit and just kind of acknowledge that we're dealing with more of a dystopian utopia. HSD originally was was very utopia-like. We touched upon that and did a couple of podcasts around that idea and where it fell. And as it's been developed, as the lore book tidbits have started to come out, as interviews have started to come out, there exists a lot of dysfunction under the perfect marketing level stuff that we've seen about HSD to date. Yeah, there was a certain formal statement of darkness element to this interview. I don't think that's the entire story because I've also seen a leaked document of Marsco as champion of vector slash human rights, human in the metaphorical sense of the word. So there are some active forces that preserve people as well. But this is a pretty dark statement. Yeah, I definitely like the term more dystopian utopia because it's not a dystopia. As as Pierce alluded to, it does not sink to the level of like Shadowrun or a full dark and dangerous future type world. It's just you have the level that people generally live at and see. And then once you scratch that surface, it's it's not quite so pretty. I think one of Seb's lines that I really liked was he's talking briefly about um, corporations as governors or government in this world and goes on to say that they fill a lot of the roles of the dictator, but they have the technology and don't actually need to enslave people. The technology will do that for them. I, I really like that line. And uh, it definitely emphasizes the, the dystopian undertones. But there's room for positive as well. It's, it's definitely not an either or thing. And maybe in your campaign it is. I, I think a lot of people in actual war zones in the real world would, would hear a description of this and say, sounds great. Where can I sign up? I mean, if you get warned in advance when conflicts are going on and there's some body overlooking it that says okay no nukes <laughs> you can't nuke the people across the street it sounds like it's pretty well contained i mean okay people are still shooting and dying but there's oversight that's kind of utopian yeah you can establish parameters and a goal for a war and that's that's a different concept if you look at the side of the technological dictatorship though that that is not a foreign concept by any means. You can see the echoes and the beginnings of many of that type of technology just current day. Whether you're talking about the phone tap and surveillance areas, whether you're looking at some of the amount of just pervasive, invasive advertising, spyware stuff that 
just comes all the way through cell phones and social medias. Uh, There's a lot of technology that is that sort of information control and information gathering and consolidation. Even right now, it hasn't coalesced to the point where it's acted upon or where it gets fed back into government levels. But it's not too hard to see where it could take a turn that way. Another thing I particularly liked about the hot zones is that they are not I mean, they are a part of the campaign world, but it does not require that anybody actually engage in violence. And in many cases, the hot zone is just the ultimate stick. If it has gone that far, it's gone too far. And most companies, most institutions will back down rather than sending their baristas into the world with blaster rifles. That makes me happy. I like my baristas. Yeah. No such thing as a blaster rifle. We use conventional munitions here, sir. Yep. Steam guns. <laughs> As of like a month ago, I hadn't had this as a topic that I wanted to discuss at all. It wasn't on my list. But I was listening to the games that Sammy and Sev were playing, the the 2.0 test games. And they talked about a hot zone and they said that it was over in a day. And in my head, a hot zone was kind of this extended like border conflict that was a location more than an event. I had it ranging from like the kind of rivalries you'd get in a soccer team grudge match on to full on like urban blight that would be a six to eight, six to eight month period. And so that it was this flash thing would be over in a day really, really surprised me. And I stopped, sent a note to Sammy saying what gives and then immediately called seven and said, hey, that interview that I've been stalling on for over three months, I want to cash it in. I want to know what a hot zone is because I don't clearly. Uh-huh. And I'm really the results really surprised me. One resource that I read to research this is a book by uh, Naomi Klein. It's pretty widely used in economics classes and government work. It's called uh, Shock Doctrine. It looks at a lot of the policies uh, for dealing with international, multinational corporations over the last 50 or 70 years. Basically suggests that these companies use shock and awe tactics or natural disasters as opportunities to draw resources away from other areas. Some of the standard examples Naomi uses are um, in Katrina, where the opportunity created by was the, the Katrina hurricane, where in the aftermath of that disaster, the powers that be replaced the fairly strong public school system with a series of charter schools, which draws resources away from the community and puts it into private hands. Or... Haitian or Thai shipping villages, which in the aftermath of a tsunami, they were washed off the coast because that happens to small, not terribly well-constructed villages. But immediately afterwards, laws are put into place saying that you had to have a permit to build within 200 feet or meters of the shore, which didn't really apply to the lovely hotels, but it did apply to the fishing villages. So the disaster was used to kind of wipe the slate clean and start over with large businesses. Uh, beautiful, much, beautiful shining concrete. Yeah, yeah. It take, takes money out of the hands of the smaller people and puts it in the hands of large corporations, which really seems very hot zone to me. Hot, hot zones would let companies create conditions of debt and then relieve conditions of debt and then take over shareholders. That's that's in the book. I think we've had the conversation about debt before. Well, we've had the conversation about debt on the personal and the game level. We really haven't talked about debt, really. No. Macroeconomic. <laughs> yeah, macroeconomic, large-scale corporate or capital asset type stuff. Well, we talked about it briefly in the economics uh, book. That The comparison point that 
HSD made was that modern corp towns, well, modern seven year, year 2750 corp towns are more robust than the ones we used to have in America circa 1900, because those existed to create a condition of ongoing crippling debt for the workers there. Whereas if you tried that in HSD continuity, the citizens slash employees would not be happy. They'd be starving. And then another company could buy them up and with them take over their shares and essentially do a hostile takeover, a large portion of the company that thought it was so clever as to create this debt situation in the first place. And if you can create crisis like this, you can create the situations of debt that are so easy to pick up at a reduced cost. And that's a very Naomi Klein sort of perspective. It'd be interesting to see if you could create that kind of company town out on a station somewhere. Because I think one of the really driving force around the company town was that there was no external government to really counterbalance those efforts. The the company town was isolated and fairly controlled. Mm -hmm. And what that really, and that situation doesn't exist as much in HSD on more populated planets because you're still talking about a fairly smaller isolation, but Corps don't live in isolation. There, there are going to be other corps around. There's going to be the corp city. There's going to be the corp nation overarching that that maybe doesn't find it in their best interest to have a little pit of misery and and debt just in the middle of the rest of their happy, shiny utopia land. Unless their goals are short term. And then you can't do the wheels within wheels thing. And why bother playing? <laughs> Another thing that's really changed this idea for me is that when we first read the books, we didn't really have a sense of the corp ecosystem that existed primarily in, I think, the author's head space. <laughs> and that is that there are corps all the way down. There's subsidiaries that control towns underneath the master corporations that control the nation-sized unit of land. And then under those, you might have a series of large corporations that govern boroughs and districts. And then you get to the Starbucks and the Donut Beast and the local nail salon. And these little companies make up or feed into the bigger companies and send money upwards and downwards in this this elaborate financial dance. Without a sense of that economy, the concept of hot zone is just warfare between megacorps because that's all there is. But over the last, I think, few months, we've really opened up the idea of these smaller corporations in our campaign, in our understanding of the world. It's really helped. I think one one thing that would help plot out a hot zone is to think about the general size and scope of it, because in our interview and also as we've been looking at it, hot zones can range from a combat conflict the size of a city block up to two areas the sizes of cities working against each other. So you can have actions that resemble full scale military actions or drop down to a scale of gang violence or even a very small number of PC-style mercenaries work against each other. So the range of scope of a hot zone can drastically change. One term I've realized that I've been using incorrectly the entire time we've been podcasting is uh, corpnation or corporation, which in my head was just interchangeable with the idea of a corp town, which is, uh, as it turns out, inaccurate. There's a very small number of corpnations. corporations. These are continent-sized areas controlled by a single corporation. There aren't that many of them. ASR has, I think, maybe two, maybe three tops, and maybe Pulse has more than one. The rest of the companies either have none or don't need them because the idea of a nation-sized corporate area is not sleek and modern anymore. 
it's possible Spyglass has none. <laughs> right. And then you get those special snowflake megacorps that claim an entire moon. Yeah, yeah, them. <laughs> That's a good example of a, of a corp nation. <laughs> so a concept that I read about while doing some homework on this episode, and one that will probably play into the next upcoming episodes on urban conflict and urban violence, is the concept of feral cities, which was kind of put out there by uh, Richard Norton in a little military briefing. I will link to that in the show notes. The idea of a feral city is that there is a large populated area, say one million people strong, and fundamentally law and infrastructure break down there, creating a information dark zone, almost a black hole, where you, you can't even know what's going on inside. Law and order have broken down. The, the hospitals aren't providing services. You don't know who's in charge. And... Law is kind of replaced by bribery and so on and so forth. The ecological system in the area breaks down because there's no infrastructure for preventing pollution, mm -hmm. for discouraging people from polluting. Dumping. Yeah, dumping. Virus outbreaks are going to be super common. And um, he was postulating that this is going to be a serious issue in warfare going forward. He was... Uh, Norton was suggesting this is not a condition that we've seen before, but there were some areas in the Middle East and in Mexico that came very close. But this was likely to be a major feature of urban warfare going forward as resources collapse. And again, this seems kind of relevant to the idea of a hot zone because a hot zone is a place where the surveillance state might break down, where IRPF is pulled backwards and out of the area. Sev described kind of a ritualized sort of combat conflict where there were strict rules but the hint was that those were sometimes applied after the fact to describe something that's already happened and there may be situations where a hot zone has expanded beyond the capacity of any mercenary force to really deal with in those situations some terrifying things might happen the toggle network might break down the ledger system could conceivably break down if the information infrastructure isn't there for a time this is a, a short duration thing but possible as a as a as a plot element. Yeah. Well, if law is being provided by IRPF or other mercenaries, if there just isn't money to pay them, then then there isn't law, right? That's actually a very interesting note in that it leads into I think one of the really critical aspects of that feral city concept is a breakdown of logistics and a resource scarcity, whether it's artificial or natural. There are too few resources to sustain a city of that size, and thus it starts turning feral, turning in on itself. Within the hot zone concept that we've been provided, and with kind of the framework of the corporations, resource scarcity doesn't seem to be something that happens very often no. in core worlds, at least. And tie that to the episode where we discussed at length the possibility of a resale market. Right. Or just the breakdown, recycling, and reuse of base materials, which fundamentally underpins the entire logistics network. No more do you manufacture something on one planet, ship it to the next nation to put the wheels on it, ship it to a third nation to so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. You just break everything down to core materials, ship it to wherever the consumers are and 3D print it. So the logistics network becomes much simplified. Uh, the projection of power and the projection of wealth becomes much easier. 
I'm not sure that a corporate nation would really have to deal with much in the concept of a failed state or a failed corp to the point of a feral city. But that becomes much more relevant once you get off of the core worlds. And this is and that term is much more for galactic empire type stuff. But once you get off of Mars and Venus, moving to some of the smaller moons, moving to especially some of the smaller independent stations, they are much further out and much more on the ragged end of Mm. resource allocation. That's where I think that could really slot into the game very effectively is more of a fallen station or a fallen colony. Yeah, one that was the victim of a conflict that was poorly contained. Although a lot of the more grotto style stuff and the more distant stations aren't governed by IRPF law so much, so they may not have that the opportunity for that. It's still a compelling thought. (laughs) How did Longwell get to the state it was right now? We don't really know. They only say there was an attack. I think the idea of the feral state, which is really compelling, particularly in a, a modern game, is the absolute worst case scenario of what could happen in a hot zone. Norton proposes kind of a red, yellow, green grading for his feral cities. So I'm going to float that a green hot zone might be a place where people are wearing like branded T-shirts. You don't go into the other team's restaurants. Members of the antagonistic corporation might be hassled by your security guards, but they're not likely to be detained. This is a place where rivalries are showing they're kind of raw, but open gunfire isn't happening. And that's, I think, the hot zone that was described in the original core rulebook. More like a soccer match, grudge match, than a uh, gang warfare in the street scenario. This reminding me of descriptions of people living in the modern Middle East having different sets of ringtones on their phones to, to, to use based on where they are, hmm. because there's certain kind of cultural or nationalistic ringtones <laughs> that if you if your phone goes off with that it, when you're in an area controlled by the other side it marks you as an oh you're an outsider I mean, <laughs> it, it sounds silly but apparently that this is real no don't play the pulse jingle in, uh, in an asr controlled state <laughs> then take that to the kind of the yellow level where you get to the uh, hot zones that pierce was describing where you're under something resembling martial law where an area is quarantined where members of the hostile force are taken prisoner by well where where members of donut beast are taken prisoner by angry baristas and locked behind the counter for the course of the uh genre people are aggressively hassled it's it's um the systems have not broken down yet but it is clearly a zone of hostility you do want to be caught outside in that mess that really sounds closer to some of the larger cities some of the inner city gang warfare yeah where- Gangs would hold certain streets, and it's still mostly safe for people unaffiliated to walk around as long as you're not wearing certain colors or come from the wrong building without whatever. Having played in an extended modern horror conspiracy game, that level of violence was part of our world, and it's difficult to reach that in a utopian setting. So, as you suggested, the hot zone concept exists to let people play out that sort of campaign. Going far beyond that to what I'm thinking of as like the red hot zone, this would be something that's extended well beyond the boundaries set by IRPF and like the standard core book, but it might be an interesting place to take a campaign. This assumes that maybe one of the corporations had some sort of last ditch weapon that they put into place or something like that or damned the consequences. And that's where you might get situations where communication breaks down, infrastructure breaks down. One thing that happens in Norton's 
feral cities frequently and in many war-torn areas is that when health services break down, diseases like cholera flare up, these opportunistic uh, diseases. Of course, most vectors that can afford the treatments, which is oh anyone you're going to encounter on a daily basis in a, in a typical game, they have progenitus' pan-immunity treatment. But there's a qualifier there, which is that fast-moving mutating viruses can still take down a substantial portion of population. And this sort of situation where services have fundamentally broken down is a place where that sort of plotline can come up or where exonyms might become a real terror in an area where they can't be policed successfully because of a deep breakdown in service providing. It's some new plot, some plot line ideas that are hard to play with in typical HSD, but in a situation where the grid itself breaks down, they could be opened up. Yeah. Well, and if if you're living in a hostile environment like in, in orbit, in, in space, in a space station, a simple riot could destroy a station. C- cities will bounce back from pretty much anything. Eventually, the fires go out and the survivors can, can start rebuilding. But at a certain point, if power goes offline, if people start setting fires instead of a space station, life support stops working. And it's not that long before everyone dies everyone leaves or dies also this the, the cost of living uh, in a space station i mean in a world which is friendly to life you can survive out in the wild with with some chutzpah and some luck and knowing what to look for on a space station every single person is expensive that, that someone has to pay for that air someone has to recycle that water and once you start running out of money you start running out of air you start running out of water and that really stinks I think like one of the bones, the books I loaned you, Ashtar, like Rim Runners, is just describing a space station which is on the down and outs as it slowly squeezes. And kind of by that point, the only people left there are people that really don't want to go anywhere because they, they need to be off the grid because they have bad reputations. It's kind of, what do you do? I mean, the simple answer is, well, go simpler, better. Well, you're probably living in this crap hole because you don't have an option. For our listeners that are playing the Radio Free Demos drinking game, who's the author of that? <laughs> CJ Cherry. Okay, just checking. <laughs> Take your drinks. I occasionally reference other authors, sir. <laughs> Another resource, which I think I've called out in a previous episode or two, but it's one of my favorites. Uh, there's a game writer named John Tynes who does a lot of really great modern horror, urban fantasy type stuff. Uh, he has an obscure little product called Power Kill which is not really so much a game as a series of questions. The concept is that uh, before the game, you set up, you set down with your party and write up a series of kind of meta characters with character sheets that are very simple. It's my name is this or that. Uh, I believe I am this or that. My mental disorder is this or that. I am in the mental hospital because of this or that. Then you sit down and play your game. And at the end of it, you come back and say, and the game master makes some decisions and says, well, you went through a underground warren and murdered all the kobolds and took their gold. So in the real world, you've gone into a series of low-income tenement housing and killed the inhabitants and taken any valuables you could walk off with. It's a grim little thought exercise, not a playable game. But one thing he throws out there is that this is to isolate the concept of fun and excitement, or uh, FAE, I think. In Dungeons and Dragons or other games like that, where is the fun and excitement? It's for pursuing very borderline legal or illegal activities like murder, like thievery, but glorifying it with the trappings of heroism. And that's not to say these things aren't fun in some sense, 
at times would ask you kind of why the criminality is exciting. I mean, it is. I think a lot of us would argue that's not even a question. The hot zone world and the, the violence that can follow opens up this kind of fun and excitement and creates an opportunity for a lot of challenging situations for role players. And, and that's that's useful. Uh, before we sat down and recorded this, Ashtar turned to us and said, hey, do you want to have hot zones in the campaign? Is that something you're looking forward to? And I think we all kind of said no. <laughs> but the moral challenges of the hot zone, I think, are something I would be interested in. Sure, sure. I was just thinking in D&D, murdering people, taking their stuff. Well, another big part of it is in fantasy in general is that in the past, there were giants in the earth in the past, that there's these amazing artifacts left behind by whoever. So is D&D really just behind estate tax? (laughs) More recently than that, uh, in the mid 80s or so, that there was a very popular thought running around suburbia middle-class America that D&D was of the devil and children who played D&D would go off into their fantasy worlds and then jump off of cliffs because they cast a spell with rat's blood and believed that they could fly. And the, the, the game or the thought process that you described really brings back trappings of that. And this also has certain echoes of violent video games. It's, well, we are adults. We are of more or less sound mind. We recognize that these are fantasies and they are thought experiments and we are treating them as such. We are not going to turn around and take our HSD experience out and go uh, unleash a couple of handguns and a crowded buy spot yelling down with spyglass because that's absurd. When you say buy spot, you mean Apple store, right? (laughs) Take your pick. Okay. However you want to layer that on the real world (laughs) and I don't know. I'll admit that I find it almost borderline offensive that that train of thought is coming back yet again and yet again when it's been not thoroughly disproven, but shown to be a really, really minor aspect. Uh, People who play violent video games do not go out and reenact violent video games. People who do violent acts are sometimes drawn to violent video games, but the correlation is not causation right well if you want to buy a gun and spray down a crowd or jump off a building you really don't need to go through the hassle of character creation first to do it you can just do it well times is a multiple offending game writer who's worked on a huge number of lines a lot of the cthulhu product and things like that i don't think this is a question about violence in gaming it's a question of elevating gaming beyond the dungeon crawl to uh, investigation to philosophical questions to the storytelling role-playing game or, or just questioning the, the, the high level of violence. Right, right. And, and I, I mean, I think that I aspire to non-murderous characters partially because I read this article and it, every time my character has to kill, I kind of think of this as, as my narrative question. <laughs> I, I'll admit, I, I don't go play Grand Theft Auto to deeply consider the socioeconomic impact of the prostitution scheme. But that's not, that's, that's not the point. So yeah. I, I suspect that I am not going to be the target audience for that particular thought experiment. Well, none of us really enjoy going down into the warrens and killing kobolds for levels on end. That's not something oh, that we seek out. Well, well, I do. If it's an interesting game, 
that's one of the things I loved about D&D 4th Edition is that it could just be a kill the kobolds and take their, their loot. But playing it out was really interesting. It was a challenging, complex game. I keep forgetting I'm the LARPer in the table. Yes. <laughs> I, I was going to say, you, you can also flip that back to like a Warhammer 40K or a sure. Warhammer Fantasy tabletop game. That literally is the game, is that tactical level table crawl of every every scenario. Uh-huh. And kind of tittering at the the super, super dark universe where who cares about the morality of (laughs) the hundreds of people that die every time you play a game because the universe stinks. (laughs) Having Having a world where the more murderous style of conflict is something that's isolated, defined as kind of an exceptional thing, I think it makes it more significant, more important, and lets you ask more moral questions than if your characters were regularly having to execute justice as they saw fit. TM John Tynes 2008. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. If you're playing Star Trek, the role-playing game, or if you're playing HSD, which has a strong utopian undercurrent, despite what we've recently revealed, <laughs> uh, your game, it, your game, your characters, and the level of ethical or moral dilemma they're faced is going to be far different than if you're playing a game of Warhammer 40k or Shadowrun. Yeah, I think that is absolutely a subject of the setting that's put in. I think another interesting intermediary step is the superhero genre, which I'm not a big, my background is not comic books, but it's it's interesting that it's a modern setting, which tends to put you in a a mindset to be less, to take the environment, to take take people more seriously than if it's just, you know, peasants in a medieval thing, kind of who cares. But it it sets up its, its own morality is that generally comic book characters are not, Murders. It adds a new medical. Yeah. But you, your standard medicals are have fun. Okay, that's just why we're playing the games. Uh-huh. But within the concept of the game, your your medicals are generally uh, get loot, get XP. And the superhero adds that third of, well, okay, maybe not even the third, but the, the new medical of be good. Or protect your reputation. Be yeah. a superhero. Be, be, be heroic and be cool. And generally not kill lots of people. Yeah. That, that's not really in keeping with being a superhero or, or really kill anyone because part of the superhero genre is the villains keep coming back mm-hmm. uh, it depends on what decade you're in really though that, that, that's very true that's very true but oh, oh, overall that, yeah. that that is the unusual thing uh, about that genre but i mean clearly people who are interested in hsd i mean we, we, we keep talking about like in the, in the miniature range the number of gun arms as opposed to the number of arms that have anything besides a gun or the number of weapons in, in the book I mean, indicates that Shooty stuff is is part of the game, and that a lot of people play the game are interested in that. There's nothing wrong with that, but it, it it does kind of acknowledge this is a direction that you can go in. You can spend a lot of time there, or to spend that another way. While hot zones are almost an arena or a spectacle of violence, a sport of violence. Uh-huh. Within the structure of the game, violence is still the answer to a great many problems. Yeah. Because yeah, if you're going to give people their cool virtual bodies, got to do something with them besides just stand around and look pretty. There's not even a stat for that. Body, Body presence. presence. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't take it. <laughs> Hyenas rarely do. That's true. Going back to a more granular and hopefully a little bit more fun way of looking at this topic. Every hot zone is ultimately governed by IRPF, and IRPF adjudicates the rules of the corporation that's paying it off. So any hot zone is going to be flavored by a mega corporation on some level. 
So I'm kind of wondering how each mega corporation would spin the, the hostilities and what it would be like to be engaged in a hot zone in a pulse territory versus obnoxious. Yeah. Flashing lights versus a TTI area. Thank you for reminding me. Speaking of the flavor of the hot zone, I did want to touch on the red hot zone for a moment. Cinnamon, <laughs> by the way. But um, I, I don't think you should touch a red hot zone. <laughs> Get your red hots. Within that, there's the green hot zone makes makes sense. That's that's both low level, very controlled. The yellow makes a certain amount of sense. That's a little bit larger structure, still very controlled. The red hot zone makes a little bit less sense in the concept of HSD in that there's a massive amount of power projection that the parent corp city or corp nation can always push down and go, you stop this. You, You have gone too far. Bring back civilization here because you're interrupting our cash flow type of thing. Right. And I think that we the, the red hot zone does not really exist in the books, but I think it's a logical extension of where things could go. Well, exactly my point. The the hot zones seem to have a certain inherent dampening force or a cap on it, which is people have kind of agreed that, yeah, we're going to play at fighting, but we're not going to let it get out of hand. And human history has shown that that does not have a very high success ratio, certainly not a hundred percent ratio. Yeah. Uh, people, especially people who are, you know, kind of losing or getting a little bit desperate, start right. escalating. Yeah, not if everybody one, agreed to the terms they're under. If one side escalates, the other side also often escalates. If this escalation happens very rapidly and especially very tactically on the field, you you can get into an escalation feedback loop that grows out of proportion before command and control external can really exert that kind of pacifying force. And one of the things that didn't really sit is the the use of force agreements at higher director or executive levels of some of these corps may not actually have a bunch of teeth to the people who are out there actually out there shooting at each other over whether pumpkin spice should be in or out this season. Well, and we we know that the hot zones are not made for the big seven. The big seven are governed by their own rules and have their own sets of conflicts. So yes, absolutely. The concerns that affect people that are engaged in hot zones, the megacorps may not even perceive those. They don't have the same economy of scarcity and limits that these other groups do. And in certain corporations, in certain areas, smaller corporations might feel persecuted and have nothing to lose beyond uh, throwing the Frappuccino bomb. That really starts becoming a question of scale. If we're talking small scale, like the employee count in a in a shop, that makes a certain amount of sense. Yes, I can't escape but a city block, really. People in larger numbers start amassing a, a kind of a force, a psychic, you know, the, the group mentality, the riot mentality. Take a look at, oh, I forget exactly when, but uh, Ireland, Spain, after some of the World Cups, whether it's a major win or a major loss for a Sports. And OK, we're talking World, World Cup here. This is like Earthwise, the culmination of a year's worth of work for the pride. Of, it's still sports. Right. Like it's people are invested, but this is not life threatening anyways. Mm-hmm. But win or lose, these cities erupt almost overnight in massive riots because escalation starts going in. And this doesn't even have a counter force. This is simply a riot that is escalating and urging itself into greater and greater destruction and violent tendencies. Yeah, every year, WFMU would keep a track of the uh, World Cup death count. Yeah. I think one of them got up to 40. Wow. And I think that is kind of my point. It's you can have 
external forces that kind of keep down the hot zone activity or the hot zone temperature, as it were. But you are dealing with an inherently unstable and destabilizing force, and that has the potential to really just spiral out of control very quickly and very destructively. And as Sev said in the interview, the rules exist to support a narrative and to support certain styles of play. There are opportunities in a game where there is an urban wasteland. There are opportunities in a place where the rules have totally broken down that you can't find everywhere else. Since most of Mars is urban, or at least most of the interesting areas of Mars is urban, then this level of devastation may be necessary to create certain storylines. And that may be good for your table. Just, <laughs> just to mention a different sci-fi author like uh, Gordon R. Dixon, who loves writing stories about people in uh, post, post-apocalyptic settings of great variety. The light shines brightest in the darkest setting. Yeah. Yeah. They do exist. Other authors. Yes. You're a jerk. (laughs) For a while, I was trying to lighten the mood by talking about what a hot zone would look like in say a pulse corporation area. Um, So I'd like to look at that because I think it'd be a fun way to wrap things up. Giant robots. Giant rope. Well, now remember it's employee versus employee. And these are ways in which pulse influences subsidiary corporations and unrelated, but landlording tenant corporations. That's right. Not giant robots, giant employees. No, see, I can't even imagine the giant robots as the foil because I do actually imagine every pulse employee to just be stacked right, and, and ready to go just face to face with the giant robot and, and take that metal sucker down. So my, vision of a pulse employee is, is from the devil wears Prada and she's not stacked. She's just very fierce. Yeah, that, that's true. It's, it's easy for me to fall in the, the mindset of every single one of them is from American gladiators or American ninja. One of those silly programs, but there's lots of ways you could be totally media over the top. You know, your, your example is a good one. Yeah. Stiletto heels are frightening too. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that in a pulse town that the revolution is absolutely going to be televised I think Pierce suggests that in a uh, hot zone, things aren't on television quite as much. There's kind of a haze of war that hides shadowy actions. Then you can kind of engage in more shadow run type activities. But I feel like in a Pulse Corp town, the presence of the media is going to be stronger. Uh, there might be roving bands of reporters that it is considered very unsafe to shoot directly at. I think you're going to be dealing with a much more sustained level of storytelling in a Pulse dominated area during a, a hot zone. You might have a uh, a corp celebrity placed in your hot zone uh, to fight with or against you, uh, kind of like a big mini in a Warhammer game who doesn't actually know the uh, lay of the land very well. Actually, have friendly fire as people are voted out of the squad. <laughs> so pulse hot zones are really just sounding like the next version of reality TV. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But one place that I think a uh, hot zone will let PC shine is in building up influence in terms of uh, community resource and possibly the economy. So in a pulse town, if you give the stirring speech that rallies the troops, that is going to be played again and again. And each time it gets played, your reach is going to be extended a little bit further. So building that economy, the uh, community presence stat, being in a pulse hot zone might be a really way to good to do that because all of your great shots and all your bloopers are going to be telecast. Yeah, way to spin it for your bard characters. I like my bard characters. <laughs> you do. Progenitus. I feel like rule one in a progenitus hot zone is going to be do not harm the innocents because they have such good hearts. I don't think necessarily people are going to follow up on that. I'm you being, and I have very different concepts of progenitus. I love progenitus. I think we've touched on this before, though. 
I think Progenitus is the least mad of the mad scientists. I really do not agree with that assessment. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think that they have a much better media presence and presentation, though. Their packaging is, is really speaks to, to the soul. When, when I say that their major rule is going to be do not harm the innocents, uh, what I really mean to say is that innocents are going to be one form of scorekeeping that's held against people that the local progenitus chapter wants to have the battlefield slanted against. I think if, you, if you're in a progenitus area and you target a hospital accidentally or on purpose, or your opponent is using a hospital as cover and you manage to do some damage, it's likely that your fees are going to be higher than you might see in an ordinary place. That's Progen exactly it. Because consider, nothing drives business like a good hot zone near a progenitus hospital. It does drive business up for the hospitals. Exactly. That, that is my point. Oh, and progenitus is also known to have some serious social biases. So if your company has perhaps involved themselves in some whale hunting or whatever the local analogy of whale hunting is, those fees are going to be slanted against you. I, I think that you're, you could find the entire battlefield weighted based entirely on your corporation's adherence to progenitus's probably somewhat arbitrary ethical standards because they are totally willing to take sides in a uh, an ethical battle. It's really hard to sell a polio vaccine if polio doesn't exist. Now we're on different sides of the progenitus case because I do I do love my my little Red Cross company. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the guy in the news now? Martin Sheckley? Sheckley? The, the businessman who who drove up the prices of EpiPens to r ridiculous levels. Oh, you mean so the pharmaceutical companies could kick him out, decry him, and then quietly just jack it up to half those levels? Yeah. And, yeah. and say, how look how good we are? <laughs> yeah. I feel like we may be dealing with a situation where the color text may or may not match reality, which is a frequent refrain in HSD and in our coverage of same. Having worked an awful lot with churches, I feel like progenitus is is very familiar to me. Uh -huh. Churches aren't always nice, but they put on a good face. Yeah, I, I've I've only ever seen him reported on the internet, so I have no clue what his name sounds like. I just think of him as smirking little scumbag. It's a bunch of letters. Schlicky, schlick. Here you go. Got the issue right after his name. If I could read phonetic Pass representations, Pass can, can, can you? Yes. Those letters are not English. Scraley. Scraley. Okay. Wow. So the conspiracy theory behind Martin Scraley is uh, that Martin Scraley was really put up, either put up or chose to be, for whatever reason, the staking horse or the scapegoat. Uh -huh. He provided the option of boosting the prices to such an outrageous extent that there was, of course, going to be public outcry. And the pharmaceutical group could just decry such a horrible thing uh -huh. and then pull it back to a more moderate level of but, increasing the price. But still high. Because at that point, it's like, well, yes, we only increased it this much, but at least we're not that, that guy right. out there that right. took outrageous profits. And I don't think that translates immediately to Progenitus, but I do think a lot of the underlying big pharma that we are seeing now... Uh -huh. uh, does translate and finds a home in Progenitus. Okay. Obviously, it doesn't translate the exact same way. We're, we're not we're not playing with people's lives with life-giving medication and vaccines. Oh, that, that, that's pulse. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, but I think a lot of that and really a lot of the 2000s modern NGO concept uh -huh. really finds a home in Progenitus. I, I think that is really where it lifts and encapsulates in. Okay. 
Yeah, it, it, it's it's easier for me to fall into thinking, oh, it's the healing god from D&D. Boring, boring, boring. But, but it's it's a corporation. It's, it's not just the source of healing potions yeah, or their technology. Mi- their mission statement is something along the lines of making the world a better place. But in practice, they have a fairly elaborate system of social justice angles. And if there's a social battle, there's a victor and a loser. And... It, that creates losers that they, they, they have biases, very strong biases. I think that's going to be reflected in whose door IRPF knocks on when there's additional enforcement of the, uh, of the rules of the hot zone. So, is cat's paw. Is, is that the word for what you're describing? What does cat's paw mean? Hey, Google. <laughs> <laughs> you people have useful degrees. You're supposed to know this stuff. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I have a computer science degree. It's useful. (laughs) Not in this context. A person who is used by another to carry out a dangerous or unpleasant task. So that's that's in line with something. Okay, cool. Yeah, that that would describe exactly what I was the the conspiracy theory about that I was kind of floating out. That did not include the concept of who is involuntarily used. And and that question is certainly up in the air. PCs. A cat's paw could be a involuntarily duped into doing whatever or could voluntarily be doing it and willing to take the social and reputational trashing uh-huh. because the king paid so much well, that it just well, doesn't matter. Well, I was, I was going to say, wouldn't that be a martyr? But if you're getting paid, I guess you're not a martyr. Yeah. Progenitus does martyrs pretty well, too. Well, I mean, paid does not necessarily just mean in cash. If, if you are getting the internal righteousness of... Uh, Fulfilling your belief for that, you're getting paid in some kind of coin. Being elevated to sainthood, right? I feel like TTI more than any of the megacorps tends towards monocultures. I think they're tied to kind of this northern purity sort of look and feel. They live in domed, domed and sterile cities on Europa, fairly far away. They probably have fewer corp towns than most of the other corporations, with the exception of uh, IRPF, who has none. One resource we have on this is the general way uh, TTI slash Progenitus, I don't know who it was, treated the citizens of the town in uh, Fate's Fangs, the novel, where they were quite cheerful about using them as experimental subjects. I think that's the sort of behavior we might be able to expect around the fringes of a TTI hot zone, that this is a time when certain ethical rules and restrictions are loosened somewhat and some surprising freeform experiments might take place. Sure. Well, I guess, or in, in the real world, there's all, all sorts of crazy, crazy medical stuff went on justified by, by the war effort. And on the flip side of that, if you are doing battle in a TTI corp town, the odds of you unleashing some horror by mistake are much higher because you might accidentally blast open a containment field of some sort. Really should label those things better. I know. And who knew that a uh, a milk frother had such a cutting edge? That would be a big Twinkie. (laughs) Of all the Corp Towns, it really seems like TTI would be one of the least likely ones to be drawn heavily into hot zones or anything such like. And really the way that I look at that is, of the other six, the non-TTI, you really kind of feel for aging Rome type civilization, um, post-peak, decadent kind of twilight years. They have grown so big, they are so overwhelmingly wealthy that they're kind of missing a point. Uh, their, 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 their mission statement just doesn't really have anything to grow to. It's it's just kind of what they've been doing. But 
TTI has a very real and a very pressing mission. They have a mystery. They are deeply and top to bottom corpish engaged to delve into this and figure this out. And in many ways, they, they feel like the weight of humanity, the weight of vector kind rests on their shoulders because this could potentially be a civilization threatening thing that they have discovered. So some counter arguments. Uh, it sounds like you're kind of addressing my suggestion that TTI tends to be a monoculture. Also, they have a level of seriousness and like lack of frivolity that's going to be cutting down on the amount of nonsense, wasted resource wars that are unleashed on them. Also, I think they're one of the smaller megacorps and they don't have that many resources to throw around themselves. So all of this kind of speaks to a level of scarcity. Well, nope, that that is actually my point. Because when I'm saying that the other six megacorps kind of have that post-scarcity, decadent Rome, we consume just to consume because... TTI is the new kids on the block. TTI doesn't really have that either. Like any resource that they can get their hands on, they can dump into trying to figure out what the heck it is that they're sitting on. Like that, that they have a mission, they have a vision, they have a statement that is real compelling. I feel like you're using the language I would use to describe progenitors, describe these people. <laughs> but, but no, I, I, I agree broadly with what you're saying. They have a narrower focus than a lot of the megacorps and they do have a more pressing threat than they are the company that's most able to face the whisper invasion head on or sell us out to it. One of the two pictures, but there are some specific areas where I think the hot zone concept might still play here. One is that even in an area that was entirely dominated by say ASR and there was nothing but ASR subsidiaries all the way down, the hot zone rules can still be invoked to purge one corporation or minicorp away. So corporations can turn their subsidiaries against each other in a, in a blood feud sort of situation. That might be an option if you're dealing with some very esoteric research or some dangerous fields of inquiry. So just because an area is, is completely monolithically TTI does not mean there can't be some artificial created infighting. That's a thing. Secondly, this is more out of the lore book, but I've been reading every single scrap of information in the lore book I can find. There are cults. There are transcendent cults that are created, and they're called universities. We don't know what they're infiltrating or how they operate or whether they're good or bad, or even if that's a concept that means anything. They could be doing research. They could be doing Lovecraftian research. I mean, they're called cults. Of course they're doing Lovecraftian research. Well, they're called universities. Who knows? <laughs> TTI has some major internal purging to do to protect their secrets. Uh, I think that is a major element of the color text story in the back of Extended is that the parents of the little girl had some, some information they'd lifted from TTI they were trying to leave with. The need to do internal purging for secrecy is fairly high with them. That's still not going to have the scale that you might get in like a Mars Coast sprawling metropolis. But there are, there are still opportunities for some really nasty infighting in a TTI area. Oh, you have such an optimistic view on these things. What? It's not the information that they were trying to leave with. TTI just could not take the chance that they would carry information with them. There was no actual agency or intent there. I'll, I'll accept that cheerfully. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying nice things about TTI. <laughs> And they do also suffer under the conservative counter-revolutionary actions besieging them of with the Villagers with Pitchforks Corp. I don't believe IRPF can engage in a hot zone. 
because they are the force that adjudicates them and they don't hold corp towns. It might be interesting to know if there's some, if in your universe, there might be a single central IRPF corp town that might be able to have this sort of thing going on. I wouldn't want to be involved in that sort of battle, but IRPF generally stands outside of these things. Oh no, I think we could turn that same logic you just used into IRPF as well, the, the monoculture argument. If you're dealing with IRPF versus IRPF intra intra uh, corp type disagreements, I don't think IRPF would have a major objection to handling that internally. Oh. And if hot zones is just the culturally appropriate way to handle these type of disagreements or resource reallocations, which it really sounds like it just is, um, as long as IRPF corps, mini corps or sub corps aren't pushing around other non-IRPF, I think internal IRPF, IRPF hot zones would totally be a thing. I think we're in a, in a hazy area here because hot zones are very much defined by geographies and IRPF is kind of over, above and around geographies. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that is a thing to consider. Ship on ship hot zone. Oh, yeah. I mean, one, one thing that IRPF might run afoul of or end up in conflict over is other corporations or subcorporations that handle security. Well, that that's competition. And if, if it's legal and appropriate to set up your own shell company to be in competition with the competition so that they can take some damage, then why not? Or perhaps, and this is something I could very easily imagine seeing in a campaign, your PCs have formed an IRPF corporation and they are forced to take the moral high ground in an argument. That creates a situation where they, a smaller corporation, may have the rules of a hot zone invoked against them to defend their little borough. Yeah. And, or save the Shire. And even if IRPF doesn't, it itself doesn't have a lot of territory, some of its subcorporations might. Truth. Well, and assets are not completely synonymous with territory. A lot of the examples we've had of hot zones is asset reallocation. And that generally comes around like buildings or employees work concepts. IRPF absolutely has assets. It just a lot of their assets are not tied down to a physical location. They have a decent amount of higher quality arms and armor at any given time, information networks. These are totally assets that may need to be reallocated or burnt down. So maybe instead of saying, hey, we're going to meet you at the corner of Starbucks and Tim Norton's, or we're just going to go find ourselves a uh, couple of warehouses or go out to one of the training facilities that we've set up previously to do war games on to do training. And we're just going to have our hot zone over there because that's where we can have it without interrupting other people. But but I don't think they'll be necessarily governed by these ceremonial layers of fines, fees, rules and such necessarily. Again, these are open questions between you and your game master and your world. Mm -hmm. I, I think of a, a comment made in, in, in one of CJ Cherry's books. Uh, <laughs> Drink. Yeah. <laughs> Which in... In a interplanetary conflict, the, the the borders were where the ships were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, territory doesn't make it make a difference. It's where is your power because all of it can be relocated anywhere you want, anytime you want. It's just to come and be in one place at a time. So, kind of the flip side of this is the question: Can there be a hot zone in a spyglass corp town or large sprawling corporate corporate metropolis, or would they have other recourses for their particular? form of death by corporate mob yeah i think from everything we've learned from spyglass the answer is kind of a 
categorical no. Yeah, it never would have gotten that far. First off, it never would have gotten that far. Second off, they never would have they would never engage IRPF to play the referee of this type of thing. And then third, in a place with much reduced rules, information is power. You would probably see that type of resource imbalance or that type of thing going on in smaller, more contained mercenary strike type stuff. A spyglass zone, while very above ground socially, as we've ever seen from the lore book, probably has an underground of like uh, Shadowrun going on more or less all the time. And when you have that type of underground that's going through and rebalancing assets and rebalancing power and rebalancing force, you don't need a hot zone. Yeah. The HSD's economy is is not, strictly speaking, a free market. It has a lot of tools and things that were put in place by Marsco and the other megacorps. Spyglass is the champion of the true free market economy. At least that's what they say on their mission statement. And to expect these these rules that are there to keep certain people down to be enforced in their territory borders, it's, it's a little absurd. One of the things that this discussion of corporate war with Spyglass is reminding me of is the Games Workshop has a game called Blood Bowl, which is <laughs> a, a, American football except played by fantasy races. And p- part of the lore of that is that w- one of their races are the, the Skaven, these nasty little evil rat men that live underground. That they're You're the, being ratist. Yes. Well, that's, uh, that, that's their lore. Um, but they're noted as being the only team to have ever won the championship two years in a row. Although it is noted that the second match took place on one of their underground pitches and the entire pitch was slanted physically <laughs> at a very strong angle towards the opposing side. There was an unusual number of bottomless pits and exploding traps on the playing field. Just, just, just imagining that, that if, if you're spyglass, you know, and you, you, they end up fighting a war, don't expect them to fight anything remotely near fair, right? Yeah, it seems like this conversation has reached its logical stopping point. So I would encourage you all to look for the Lurebook Kickstarter that should be out now. We will have a link to it in the show notes as soon as it's available. Uh, I would also ask that you support your local Star Parks and catch the outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Sirius Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Don't look at me like that. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Do we need to, re- do we need to rewind? Or... No, if you're good, go ahead. I don't know if I'm good or not. I, I did not actually have a point there. That oh, was okay. intended to be cut the entire time. Good. Okay. Well, I can <laughs> definitely achieve that for you. No problem at all.